Good morning, church. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord and pray. Father, we are before you and we need your mercy and we need your grace. We need your illumination now. I pray that you would remove all the distractions from us that we may focus on Christ this morning and we may focus on his word. I pray, prepare our hearts to not only hear, but to respond in faith. We submit our, ourselves to you now. Amen. <clears throat> well, I want to welcome all of you who are near and those of you who are far and those of you who are online connected to us. Praise the Lord. It's always a privilege for me to open up God's word each morning and to be instructed uh, from his holy word. I want you to open now to Colossians. Colossians, as Jan mentioned, we are back in this series. We began our study in Colossians on March 1st of this year. Uh, but we paused here in the summer to um, look at a very important study in God's word, our union with Christ. And, and as we return back to this book, I trust that um, that particular study it will be helpful as we resume the discussion in Colossians because much of what we discussed during summer will overlap with what's going on here, especially in chapters three and four of Colossians. We have entitled this series, Complete in Christ, Living in Light of Christ's Fullness. In writing this letter, Paul wanted the church in Colossae to know that once they believed in Christ and were made new, they were made complete and they lacked absolutely nothing in terms of their identity and their Christian walk. For instance, if you're now in Colossians, turn to Colossians chapter 2 and uh, look what he says in verse 9 and 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And because of that verse 10 and in him, you have been made complete. As we turn to chapter three, I want us to think for a minute about clothing. You know, clothes says a lot about us, about each person. Mark Twain once said, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. And when you think about that, he is probably right. This motto, dress for success, is still common advice and is uh, widely considered. The reality is that most of us, if not all, give a tremendous amount of attention to what we wear and what is in style each and every month. But as with everything else, you know, style quickly changes and it varies culture to culture. Clothes say a lot about person. You know, what is acceptable today might not be acceptable three months from now. In fact, what is acceptable today, in my humble opinion, uh, some of what's acceptable today should not be acceptable at any point. Okay, no matter what culture, no matter what century you find yourself in, but we'll talk about that in another sermon. Uh, the good news for us Christians is what was in style in first century 
remains in style in the 21st century. And that's exactly what I want us to consider here this morning. There are pieces of Christian apparel that we're called to put on that are always appropriate and that are always in season. Paul begins Colossians chapter three by noting that we have been set free in Christ as verse one says, to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on the things that are above. This is possible because we have been, according to verse one, raised with Christ in the past. And verse three says that we are hidden with Christ now presently. And verse four says that we will appear with him in glory in the future. This is true of us now. And this is, this will be true of us in the future. And as those who have been raised up with Christ, we are to consider our old self as dead and to put off the old life, the, the old life of the old self, because as he says later on, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to verse 11 of chapter three, if you were just look at it, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Christ, Paul says, has obliterate, obliterated all distinctions, whether they're religious, intellectual, or they're social. He substituted himself for all these distinctions. Now for Christians, Christ, Paul says, permeates every single thing. Christ is all and in all. You know, in light of this, we need to realize that there are no superstars in the church. There's only one who's Jesus Christ. As, as people to whom Christ became all in all, we are called to put on Christ, wear his virtues and graces, which ultimately point to him and the work of the spirit in our lives. And this is what Paul wants us to understand as a church. We need to be all about one person. And that person is not here in bodily form. That person is Jesus Christ. And we need to be actively putting on his virtues so that we would look more and more like him because we are new in Christ. Consider verse five, we'll begin with verse five and we'll read through verse 17 as we begin our study and pick up in verse 12. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Jew, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And here's our passage. So as those who have been chosen of God, Holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. As we consider this passage here, verses 12 through 14, I just want us to to jot this down and to remember this, this main emphasis. Paul says, as God's beloved, we must wear the virtues of Christ to effectively fellowship with one another as redeemed sinners. As God's beloved, we must wear the virtues of Christ to be effective in our fellowship with one another as God's redeemed sinners. As we look at this text, Paul has two simple points. Number one, as God's beloved, put on Christ. And number two, put on Christ by putting up with one another. Okay, so I want us to look at these these two points here. Number one, as God's beloved, put on Christ. He begins in verse 12 by pointing out the basis or the ground for being able to fulfill the command here that comes later on in verse 12. He has already given us the basis at the beginning of this chapter for all the commands, the fact that believers have been raised up with Jesus Christ. As a consequence of this reality, Christians are to put off the old man and put on the new. Something that happened in the past, you need to consider that and then start getting rid of all the vices, putting on all the virtues. But here in verse 12, Paul states that believers are to put on something because they are, quote, chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved. This is in fact, the only time Paul refers to our election in this short epistle. He states it as a matter of fact, not dwelling too much on it. He just says, as those who are chosen, holy and beloved, here's what you do. But this verse is just one of many passages across the entire scripture that describe the disciples of Jesus as elect or as chosen by him. Throughout this letter, Paul has been um, referring to their salvation from both the human standpoint and from the divine. I mean, check, check this out. Go back to Colossians chapter one. And as a way of review, we'll take a look at this quickly. For instance, Colossians chapter one, verse three, Paul says, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith and then your love. And then he says, the gospel which has come to you, the gospel which you've learned from Epaphras, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So he's looking at their salvation from, the, from their standpoint. It is your faith. It is your love. You accepted the gospel. You learned it from Epaphras. Go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, you've received Jesus Christ. This is what you did. But then there's also a sense in which 
he focuses it on the standpoint from, from divine standpoint. If you go back to Colossians chapter one, look at verse 13. Even as you believed, even as you received, even as you exercised your faith and your love, look what happened to you in verse 13. He rescued you from the domain of darkness. He transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He forgave you your sins. Verse 22 says that he reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. If you flip to chapter two, that section of verses 10 through 15, Paul says that in him, you have been made complete in him. You were circumcised. He made you alive. He forgave you your transgression. So there's just two sides of looking at our salvation. We believed, we received, we love. And then from the divine standpoint, he says, no, he rescued you. He transferred you. He forgave you your sin. But the ultimate question is why? Why did he do that? Why did he rescue? Why did he transfer? Why did he forgive, reconcile us to himself? What is the basis for such love and such kindness? And the answer is not found in us. It is found in him alone. It is rooted in his choosing of sinners to love them and to display his grace towards them. You know, election, this word that Paul uses here, have been chosen of God. Election is the expression of God's eternal decree by which he has freely chosen according to his own grace, people for salvation. A choice that is not dependent on anything that we do, on anything that we are. Because without divine intervention, the Bible teaches that man would never believe, they would never love, they would never receive Christ Jesus. Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, all of mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. And it's impossible for anyone dead to act. In first Corinthians two fourteen, Paul describes the natural man as refusing to quote, accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And Jesus himself in, in John six forty four says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And here in Colossians chapter one, verse 13, Paul tells us that sinners, they need to be rescued from the domain of darkness, which by implication means we need a savior. And without this rescuing act, we would all be damned. What is the basis then of our salvation? Brothers and sisters, the basis of our salvation is God's mercy, grace, and love. God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Roman 3, 24 says being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He goes on in Romans 5, 8 to say, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The saving work became, becomes effective in time. Although the, the wheels for our salvation are set in most motion from eternity past. For instance, consider this second Thessalonians two thirteen. Paul writes, but we should always give thanks to God for you. He's thinking about this church and he's saying, brothers and sisters, 
as I write to you, I thank God for you always. Why, Paul? Because you're beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. I want to thank the Lord, Paul says, because I'm looking at you. And the only reason why you are here, the only reason why you believe, the only reason why you love one another, the only reason why we see Christ in you is because God decided in eternity past to shed his love on you and to call you in time to be his own. What is the point of all of this? The point is that if it wasn't for God's action, no one will be in Christ. None of us. The realities that we read in Colossians chapter three would be so foreign to us if it wasn't for the starting point from eternity that God decides to do this. And here in Colossians 3.12, Paul outlines the radical results of being chosen by God. He says, so then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, holy and beloved, as God chose you, he set you apart. That's the, that's the emphasis of holiness, that you don't no longer belong to the realm that, that you were once in. You are now removed from that realm and you are separated for the work and purposes of Christ. You are holy and you are loved in Jesus Christ. The elect of God are those whom he has set apart for himself and placed his love on them. And church, some of you, especially this morning, might be doubting God's love for you, his care for you, his kindness to you. And I think you need to dwell on this verse. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, this word is from the Lord. None of it is in you all because of Christ, but in Christ, you are cherished, you are loved, you are set apart God's kindness to you is great. And we need to dwell on that. Now, as God's beloved, we are to live accordingly in a new manner, exhibiting this holy character. We are to put on certain virtues that are characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is why he begins by saying, so then put on. And the order here is, is very important. In our English Bibles, you have so as those, he gives you the basis first, but in the original, he basically jumps right into action, right into command. So put on as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved. And so it's very important for emphasis here, put on. As verse 11 indicates, Christ is all in all. We should live as people for whom Christ has become all. We should live displaying Christ in us. That is why I entitled this morning sermon, Christian, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? The idea of this term to put on in verse 10, as well as here is to enter into, is to sink into this garment. That is why it's often translated as clothe yourself with. As we consider the virtues listed in these verses, we will quickly notice that these are the qualities of Jesus. So it's not unusual for Paul in another passage, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, say this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of enumerating all of these qualities of Jesus Christ that he does here, 
that he does in Ephesians like Kirill read at the beginning of our uh, service here. Paul just simply summarizes this and says, put on Jesus Christ. That's it. Consider what Paul says in chapter one already of uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 27, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in us. In another letter, Paul describes this Christian life this way. Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the whole emphasis of this passage now in light of what Jesus did for you, Colossians one and two, Here's what we need to be doing actively, daily, continually. Therefore, when he commands us to put these qualities on, we are commanded to put on Christ, the graces and actions of Christ, which contrast the old man, as we will see. Now, what are they? What are these virtues? What are these graces? He begins by saying, church, put on heart of compassion. It's this emotional pity towards those in need, deep feeling of concern for those in need. This, this quality is a reflection of God himself. As the same term is dis- describes him in, in 2 Corinthians 1.3 as the father of all compassions. Many of our translations translate this uh, term as the father of all mercies. This is exactly the same word that's used here at a heart of compassion. You want to reflect God's compassion. You put on compassion, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse one, right? In view of God's mercies, he says, I beseech you in light of God's mercies. That same word is used as compassion. Exactly the same term in light of God's compassion. I tell you, I ask you, I plead with you to offer up yourselves. Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Jesus shows the same compassion for the distressed, for the sick, for the hungry. This this quality results from our new nature as God's beloved. Compassion regards the condition of others and considers what I can do for them. How can I help? You know, in contrast in verse five, where he says the evil desires and greed of the old man that we must put off. In contrast to that, a man of compassion considers the condition of others and and, and thinks of ways, right, that he can help instead of thinking of ways that he can exploit others for selfish reasons. Someone who is greedy, someone who has evil desires. And Paul says that in order to live like Christ in, in the community of believers, we need to display this quality of Christ by being concerned with one another. But not only that, he says, put on kindness. Kindness is another quality of God. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance or Ephesians chapter two, verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his Grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This kindness is foreign to us. You know, you, you've ever seen, a, it's very popular, these t-shirts, be kind, bumper stickers, be kind. There's even a, an energy bar. There are kind bars that, that apparently once you eat, you, you, you become kind. But consider this. 
Consider this, what, what Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 12. You all know this verse. It's quoted from Psalms, but look what he says. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This term good. There is none who does good is the same exact term as there is no one who is kind. There is none who is kind. There's none who, who does kindness to another. Why? Because kindness is foreign to us. It's foreign to our natural self. But as those who are born again in Christ, those of us who have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, Paul now commands, look to Jesus, look to God because he's kind. He is patient. He is full of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that a derivative of the same term is used by Jesus to describe him, his yoke in Matthew eleven thirty, where he says, for my yoke is easy. Remember that verse for my yoke is easy. That word easy is kind. It's pleasant. I'm not going to, I'm not going to torture you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to show you grace. That's exactly what God does in Christ Jesus. And as, as new creatures in Christ, we, we are instructed to respond to God's kindness, showing kindness to others because kindness is a fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 22, you know, kindness can be said that it is grace in action. It is grace in action. And according to first Corinthians chapter 13, verse four, it is a direct outworking of love itself. We spent two chapters this summer or two uh, sermons this summer looking at this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, love is kind. Kindness considers others and does good to them, which is the very opposite of malice in verse 8 of chapter 3, which desires to harm and results in harsh treatment of others. Humility. Put on humility, he says. Humility is a byproduct of gospel. When I understand where I've been and where I was headed and what God did for me in Christ, then the only proper response is humility. You ever considered why God used the cross as a means to save us? You ever, you ever thought why, why such a foolish method was used in order to save us? He gives us an answer in multiple places Ephesians chapter two, verse nine, the reason why this is so, he says, so that no one will boast. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 22, the reason why you're saved through this foolish message of the gospel is so that no man may boast before God. It's foolish to the world. It is the power of God. Paul demonstrate to us who are being saved. You know, in the world where Paul was writing this first century Greece, humility was no virtue. Greeks had no place for loneliness in any aspect of life. You know who, you know who made humility cool? Jesus himself did. Jesus. In Christ, humility became a virtue. Remember what he says in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who what? Humbled himself. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I, I, 
um, just a couple of weeks ago was listening to a sermon and, and the preacher mentioned that, you know, out of all the chapters, I think 89 chapters in the gospels, there's only one place where Jesus mentions his own heart. There's only one place where he refers to his own heart. And he says this, Remember in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says this, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the only place. And the only place where Jesus has the opportunity to mention his heart, he highlights the fact that he is gentle and that he is humble. Jesus invites his followers to learn from him because he is humble in heart literally means lowly in mind. You constantly see yourself as an object of divine grace. Humility is an attitude that esteems others better than yourself. Gentleness, gentleness, gentleness flows out of humility. And in the new Testament, this term is most often used in people's attitude with one another. For uh, instance, second Timothy two twenty five, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Titus three, two, Paul writes, showing every consideration or being gentle with all men. Gentleness. Barclay says this, a man who is gentle does not assert his own importance or authority. He has every instinct and every passion, every motion of his mind and heart and tongue and desire under perfect control. As with most of these virtues, gentleness is also the fruit of the spirit and describes the manner in which we are to deal with one another. Instead of being abusive as the old man was and wrathful in our speech and our approach, we are to be polite. We are to be courteous to one another here in this community. We are to be willing to suffer injury rather than afflict it, being gentle. The scripture instructs us that even as we rebuke one another, something that we need to be doing to one another constantly, we are to do this in the spirit of gentleness and patience. You know, such behavior also demonstrates that someone is wise and understanding according to James 3.13. You want to be wise and understanding? Do you consider yourself wise and understanding? Ask yourself, am I gentle? Do I have this virtue of Jesus Christ? That is why this word became an adjective describing a polite society, right? We we refer to gentlemen. When someone refers uh, to to a man as gentleman, he is someone who who can handle himself with courtesy in all situations. Something that is so foreign right now when we think about our society. But it got to start here. It has to start with us. It has to start with within the church, within the saints, within the chosen, within the holy and the beloved of God. Patience. Patience in this context here, patience is being slow to avenge a wrong or to retaliate when someone hurts you. It is to remain calm when you're being provoked without irritation. This word always relates to how we respond to people, not necessarily circumstances. And church, 
we must remember that God was and continues to be patient with us. I mean, remember this verse, write it down. I already quoted it, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Don't think, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Patience. God is patient with us. And in view of this, how can we not be patient with one another? We must be assured that God is at work here in this church and he is slowly molding us into the image of Christ, but we are not the final product as he promises we will become one day. And because we're not perfect and because we're not mature, we continue to sin against one another. And therefore we need to be patient. We need to be, as another translation says, long-suffering. And get this church to be long-suffering. God brings people into your life to make you suffer long. So be prepared. Be prepared. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look what he says in verse 14. Beyond all these things, love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If all the other graces and qualities above here in verse 12 are characteristic of God and Christ, then this character here, this quality, this virtue here is predominantly so. Beyond all these things probably means that in addition to everything that I've said, love. Again, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13, love is the supreme Christian grace. And in Romans 13, Paul says that all the commandments are summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This love is the self-sacrificing love for the benefit of another. The kind of love that God has for us. And the love which we demonstrate that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in in John 13, 35, by this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the quality that, that forms the foundation and motivation for all the other characteristics of the new man, which leads to perfection, he says this. When each member in the church clothes himself or herself with the love of Christ, such love binds all the members in unity and produces perfection. This perfection here is not attained in individual environment, but only as Christians show love to one another. And through this, the body is built up. Church, are we wearing Christ? Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we living the life of Christ? Is that which true of us in our position seen in our practice? Another question to ask, are we a living advertisement for Christ to one another and to the outside world? Do we advertise Christ? As we transition to our second point, consider what Kent Hughes says. All these garments can be worn only in community with others, in relationships. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we did not have to wear them among people. How much easier to think about compassion than to do it? How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people? 
It would be far easier to put on humility and gentleness if, if we were not being jostled by proud and assertive. How much easier patience is in isolations. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community, in their families, among their associates, in their dorms, in their churches, where there is sweat and breath. The truth is, the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things which make possible their wearing. You get that? The very thing that we think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things which make possible their wearing. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They have to be worn here. Not when you're in isolation in your bunker, somewhere removed from somebody, and you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am really patient today. It's because there's not another sinner around there to provoke you. That's why. And I'm sure you are aware of that. You know that. Those of you who have spouses, you know that. Those of you who have children, you know that. Those of you who have committed yourself to a body of Jesus Christ, local body of Jesus Christ, you know this to be true. And that's why Paul is not addressing individuals here. He is addressing a church where this is going to be an issue, where this is going to be real. And he says, when you are there, when you're dealing with all of this sin, when you're dealing with all of this offense, when you're dealing with all the disagreements, you put on Jesus. You put on Jesus then. Community, church, put on Christ. The church is, as they say, where the rubber meets the road. It's where we're at in our small groups, in our congregation together. This is where we're tested the most. So first, as God's beloved put on Christ, number two, put on Christ by putting up with one another. It's very interesting what he says here in verse 13. You put on these things, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So these two participles bearing and forgiven in verse 13, they express the means by which we carry out this main action. You put on by putting up with one another, by forgiving one another. Literally bear with one another is that you put up with one another. If you were going to translate this phrase here, literally Paul here addresses the reality that the church is not mature and will not be mature until the Lord returns and the entire church is glorified. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 13. We need to be, he says, involved in training. He puts uh, pastors in place. He puts evangelists in place. He equips the entire church with gifts of all sorts in order to equip the church. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is the end goal. This is where we're all heading. This is where this church is heading. This is what we're praying for. As we are put in our position in our responsibility, as we encourage you to step up and serve, this is the goal that the church would be mature. But as we are on our way there, the church consists of sinners, not the ones who are sitting next to you, but you, me, us, Redeemed, yes, but imperfect, who need to put up with one another and who need to forgive one another over and over and over again. 
One French reformer said this. Note that Paul does not say putting up with the weak and disobedient. Identify the weak and disobedient in your church. No, he doesn't say that. But he says putting up with one another. He means that no Christian is so irreproachable and perfect that he has no faults. And therefore, he not only has to put up with his weaker brother, but they must also put up with him. And I think sometimes we focus on the other, the other. We say one another, one another. That's you, that's him, that's him. And I don't want to be hanging out with them, so I'm out. But church, saints, consider this, that the other is putting up with your mess too. He's putting up with my mess. He's putting up with my unbelief. He's putting up with my bad thoughts that I allow to slip through and to express them. I need forgiveness just as much from you as you need forgiveness from the one who's sitting next to you. One another is not simply another. It's one another. Remember, as I said earlier, there are no superstars in church. There's only one champion and his name is Jesus. The rest of us, we acknowledge our weaknesses and sins and we look to Christ for transformation. How do you put up with my weaknesses and my sinfulness? With love, with love. When you sin, when, when I sin, the rest of the church should gather around me and point me to Jesus. When we see sinning brothers, sitting sisters in the church, we don't let them go. We don't let them destroy themselves, but we rally around them with love, with gentleness, compassion, patience, kindness. We wrap ourselves in Christ. We go up there and we point them to our champion, to Jesus Christ. We compel them to repent. The saints must bear each other's burdens and suffer with them patiently. And bearing with one another, Paul says, it takes compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But not only just putting up with one another, he says you ought to forgive each other. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. The Greek word here to forgive is based on this Greek term that that has grace in it. Grace. You ought to be gracious towards one another. Its scope is one another. We are to offer grace to another person. When are we to do that? He says, whenever there's a complaint, whenever there's a complaint, whenever there's some grievance in the congregation that needs to be dealt with, we don't allow these things to spread. We forgive. We deal with it in Christ-like way. And church, just considering our landscape, considering going back a couple of years, there are lots of grievances that we've been airing with one another against one another. The way to deal with this is Paul says, we are to forgive each other. We are to forgive each other. This is a common occurrence. Grievances will happen. Complaints will take place. Why? Because we're here because we're sinners because that's what we do apart from God's grace. As soon as we take our focus off of the gospel, we complain. We complain against one another and we complain against the Lord. 
What's the standard or motivation for our forgiveness? Divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness. Why should you forgive? Paul says, because the Lord forgave you. It's just amazing. Notice that he, he does not care what grievance is. He does not care how great, how big, how wide complaint is, how big your laundry list of things against that person is. He says, forgive. Why? Look at all this list. What did God do for you? What did the Lord do for you? He forgave you all. One commentator says vertical forgiveness should result in horizontal forgiveness. Church, if you walk as forgiven, you are to have this disposition of granting forgiveness, granting grace to others as well. What we need most is to dwell on the gospel, to remind ourselves over and over again that God in Christ had done for us and continues to do all of these things, not because he sees some potential in us, some good in us. No, but because he loved us in his son and he has this disposition to grant grace. Oh, how we need to do that even now, church. Those who are clothed with Christ his compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love will be inclined to act like Christ. Someone said it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. It is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. Saints, brothers and sisters, remember this. You will never have to forgive anyone as much as God in Christ had already forgiven you. Never. No matter what it is that you're dealing with. And so in conclusion, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? As God's beloved, we have been picked up. We have been put on the team We have been given his uniform as Christians. We play by a different rule book. Each of these garments was perfectly worn by Jesus himself. He longs to see his church, his saints wear them too. And guess what? He never requires of us that which he himself does not supply to us. As I've mentioned, if we walk by the spirits, we will bear the fruit of the spirit. Church, let us, as Paul says in another place, walk by the spirit and put on Christ in order to bear one another and in order to forgive and be gracious to one another. And we have plenty of opportunities to do that even now. Do it. Our father, we are so thankful to you for the numerous grace that we experience in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us never to escape the shadow of the cross in order to leave the reality of the gospel and go forth. And as the parable says, choke our brothers and sisters unwilling to forgive them, unwilling to deal kindly with them. That is our natural tendency, but we're not in our natural flesh anymore. We are 
renewed. We are made new. We are your children. We are Christians. Encourage us to take inventory of our heart this afternoon, this week, and perhaps consider who it is that we need to get in touch with in order to resolve our issues, in order to show kindness and gentleness to someone. And I pray that you would create opportunities within this congregation to do exactly that today and as we go forth. We praise you that you have equipped us with your spirit to be not only willing but able to put on Jesus Christ and wear him no matter where we're at. We thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen.